You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Hi there. I'm Maria Varmazas, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast, and you're listening to T-Minus Overview. T-Minus. In this program, we'll feature some of the conversations from our daily podcast with the people who are forging the path in the new space era. From industry leaders, technology experts and pioneers, to educators, policymakers, research organizations, and more. The International Space Station has been in continuous operation since November 1998. It is the largest modular space station in low Earth orbit, traveling at an average of a mere 17,500 miles per hour, 250 miles above the Earth. Living up to its name, the International Space Station, or ISS, is a global effort that involves five space agencies. NASA from the United States, Roscosmos of Russia, Japan's JAXA, Europe's ESA, and Canada's CSA. The ISS is primarily a lab space where science experiments can be conducted in microgravity. And there have been some amazing scientific breakthroughs on the station in the last 25 years or so. But in 2030, it's coming to an end. So what's going to happen once the ISS is gone? And what might replace it? We'll explore that a bit in this episode, where we're going to take a look at the commercial low-Earth orbit destination market and beyond. Our first guest is Steve Wolf. Steve is the president of the Beyond Earth Institute, a nonprofit think tank that is focused on policy and regulatory issues that will help us get closer to a future where humans can live and work in outer space. Steve is spearheading the commercial Low Earth Orbit Destination Program. And we started our chat with me asking him, quite simply, to explain what that means. The Commercial LEO Destination Program, we call it CLD, it was a program that was initiated by NASA. It was created because we recognize that the International Space Station is going to come to the end of its useful life sometime by the end of this decade. And NASA has made the decision, and many people think it's the right one, that NASA should turn over LEO activity to the private sector and turn its attention to deep space exploration. So you're familiar with the Artemis program where we're going to go back to the moon to stay and then go on to Mars and explore Mars. And those are exciting things that NASA should be doing. And it's uh, reached the conclusion that after 20 years of operation of the ISS and all the experiments that they've done, that they've helped to develop and foster commercial capability in low Earth orbit, and they want to turn that over. So 
what the CLD program is, is they've identified, I would say, four providers, companies that will build habitats in low Earth orbit that would serve the needs of NASA in low Earth orbit with shirt sleeve astronauts to continue to conduct the kind of research that they were doing on the ISS. In addition, these private operators of these space stations would also now be able to go to and develop other markets of other folks to come to their space stations along with NASA to develop whole new markets of activities on these space stations. So it's really an exciting new transitional moment in history, which if it all comes off right, so that's the tricky part. That's an if, if, they can if. Make, <laughs> if they can make this transition properly, and if there are the markets that NASA, or I should say that the private sector is hoping to develop, it will be an exciting time. You know, the 2030s and 2040s will see this dramatic increase of the numbers of people that are going into space, into low Earth orbit, to be uh, as scientists, to continue to do scientific experimentation, as industrialists, to actually go up there and, and manufacture interesting and new kinds of products that can be brought down to Earth and utilized in markets on Earth. And of course, not the least of which is the opportunity for humans to go into space just for the experience, right? Space tourism, people talk about that a lot. So those are the three big buckets of categories that all of the private space station providers are now eagerly seeking to develop. when I, I was sort of thinking about this program, the CLD, my initial impression was it's not that NASA is going, we're done with LEO. It's saying we're going to partner with the private sector, but we're going to concentrate our efforts beyond LEO, right? That's really what the emphasis is on this is commercial space can do LEO and then NASA is going to do its thing kind of beyond. Exactly. So NASA is going to continue to do research in LEO. It, it needs to do that. There's a lot of important research as part of their mandate to do. And Leo is a great Earth place to do a lot of and, yeah, for the sciences yeah. and so forth and advancing all that. So they're going to be a tenant, right? They're going to rent space in these facilities and they'll have so much space and they'll, they'll negotiate the terms and so forth with these private sectors, the same way the government might rent space in a building anywhere to serve its needs. So that's the model. The challenge is going to be making sure that this whole transition is successful, right? Right, yeah, so, that if that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, there, there yes. is an if there, and there's two, yeah. two big question marks here, okay? So first is money from the government. So NASA has committed a certain amount of seed money to these uh, space station, commercial space station providers. They're expecting these stakeholders to then go also to the capital markets to raise additional funding to help to build and deploy these things. So NASA is not paying the full yeah. freight. So there's a risk there, right? There's automatically a built-in risk there. That's risky, yeah. But, you know, NASA needs to take the position that regardless of what happens, there needs to be that capability. I truly believe at the end of the day that NASA needs to do whatever is necessary to make sure that this capability is there. And so maybe might not have four 
separate facilities, okay, but we need this capability, whatever form it could take. So there's that challenge. The other challenge, and this relates to the private players being able to raise the money, has to do with the markets, right? How quickly those markets might be able to mature. And that's the challenge because we're, in many sense, you're talking about a very, very new and nascent potential here, right? Um, And it's still expensive, right? The cost has been coming down, thanks largely to SpaceX and Falcon 9, but it's still very, very expensive. So, for example, Axiom has a ticket price of taking passengers up to the space station right now, $55 million per launch, you know? So it's just not, except for the very, very wealthy or the, you know, as an investment model, that's a big chunk of money. So there's that challenge. Um, And and again, we were anticipating things like um, SpaceX's Starship that ultimately could be a big game changer once it's operational. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Fingers crossed, right? So that's the challenge. It's just it's a bit of a race that's going on right now. So NASA's ISS is retiring. We don't want a situation where the ISS is decommissioned and it's deorbited and we don't have that commercial capability yet, right? So that's the last thing that we want. That was a kind of the situation we had with the space shuttle, where the space shuttle came to the end of its life. And once that happened, the U.S. had no capability of launching astronauts from U.S. soil up to the space station. We had to rely on the Russians. So yes, we don't yeah, want, well. you know, yeah. we don't want any kind of repeat of that kind. So that's the, that's the challenge. You know, it's a big challenge for NASA. It's a big challenge for industry. And we maintain that, that CLD can't, must not fail, right? And there has to be a decision that, you know, Whatever happens, it cannot fail. It must, we, we need this capability. And it's a matter of national security, frankly. You know, we know that the Chinese are aggressively moving into this capability. Other nations are, are, are talking about putting up space stations. And, you know, the U.S. cannot be, just cannot be left behind on this, whatever it's going to take to make this happen. So that's our position. One of the commercial companies working on producing a private space station is Vast. T-minus producer Alice Caruth met up with David Caponio from Vast to ask him about their plans for the commercial lower Earth orbit destination market. Uh, I'm David Caponio, the Senior Vice President of Product and Business Development at Vast. Well, we're a relatively new company, founded just about two years ago, uh, with a vision of creating an artificial gravity space station. Last May, uh, we announced our first space station called Haven 1. That's a single Falcon 9 module space station to be launched uh, by August 25. Um, and then to be shortly thereafter crewed with a uh, four-person crew from SpaceX Dragon launch, um, and then a total mission lifetime of three years with 40 days of crew time uh, spread out over four missions. Wow. Yeah. So you come in at an angle that other companies aren't doing in that CLD area of bringing in artificial gravity. Why are you doing that? What's the benefit of having that artificial gravity environment when others are looking for microgravity for experiments, for example? 
That's true. Um, we had our first conversations with, with NASA um, on artificial gravity. They were ecstatic. Um, this has been a dream for them uh, for the last uh, two or three decades, uh, since the early part of the ISS, um, to have uh, some sort of artificial gravity generation on a large scale. They do have centrifuges um, on, on board, but this would be you know, full life-size uh, human-rated centrifuge in space um, with the whole Cyrus space station. And we did this, uh, you know, like I said, it's the vision of the company, the founder, uh, Jed McCaleb, um, who's uh, our single founder and funder uh, of the entire uh, Haven One plan and through the future, um, did this because um, one of the major challenges of humanity living in space is the detrimental effects of microgravity. Um, everything from bone loss to muscle loss, even brain uh, effects, uh, octave nerves. I mean, there's just been a whole host of study in microgravity on deleterious effects of, of uh, microgravity. And the only way to solve that is with artificial gravity. Um, so we do that with centripetal force, simply spinning on the spacecraft. It's no simple feat, of course. So we're gonna be taking an incremental approach. Um, and with Haven 1, even though it's a crewed space station, um, there's uncrewed portions um, that are they're quite lengthy um, where we'll attempt to perform an uncrewed demonstration of artificial gravity. Even at a space station of that size, um, we're able to generate up to one-sixth gravity, which is the gravity found on the moon. Um, we'll have an entire ISS express rack um, that will experience one-sixth gravity for a period of about a week, and basically will become a lunar test bed that you can do in LEO earlier and at a fraction of the cost. So tell me about your customer base. If you're gonna be creating this artificial gravity base in LEO, who is it you're looking to attract to get out there? Well, the unique part of um, our next space station, which it's kind of a working title, we're just calling it Stick for now. Um, it would be a Starship class, a seven meter in diameter, uh, seven modules all linked together um, on a hundred meter span. Um, spinning that end over an end like a baton uh, allows you to generate um, zero G in the center, obviously, and then up to one G at the ends. Um, and then between that, you get uh, variable gravity um, hitting, of course, lunar gravity, Martian gravity, even Venus, um, and then all the way up to eventually one G. Um, so it allows for a gravity laboratory, uh, basically studying the effects of gravity on the human body. We know a lot about one G. We know a lot about zero G. Uh, we don't know much about anything in between other than you know two weeks on the moon uh, six times. So it allows us to kind of do that quite easily in LEO. You know, it's still in a you know, zero uh, microgravity environment, testing variable gravities you know, all the way up through, through 1G, and really testing you know, if we do Martian expeditions, you know, six months to get there, 18 months on planet, six months to get back, um, and then you're, you're at a third of gravity while you're on planet. Is, is existing in 1G uh, during the transit enough um, to then you know, exist at, at one-third G for another 18 months? Uh, or something maybe a little bit higher, like uh, over 1G, you know, 1.1, 1.2. Um, does that kind of supercharge us to, uh, to then be on planet uh, at, a, at a, a lesser degree, which we have obviously can't be in a centrifuge when we're on planet, um, and then allow us to come back maybe at that accelerated gravity and then be back at Earth at you know, a relatively less affected state. Um, Fantastic. So, yeah. What a great idea. Now, you kind of alluded to it a little bit. You are working with NASA. Can you talk me through that agreement that came out earlier this year? Yeah. So we were founded uh, just after the uh, selection of commercial LEO destinations. So that, is, of course, is a fun and space act agreement with the, the three selectees. Um, and, and we did not propose to that, obviously, because we didn't exist at the time. Uh, but uh, just earlier last, this year, we were selected for the Collaboration of Commercial Space Capabilities, part two, uh, one of seven awardees. 
And even though that's an unfunded Space Act agreement, um, it does allow us uh, to start the conversation with NASA, um, to develop the relationship, to do initial um, data exchanges um, with a lot of lessons learned from ISS, um, potential access to uh, NASA testing facilities, um, and, and p potentially NASA services like communications from Tedris. Um, so we're very excited to get going. Um, we had uh, just kick off a few months ago, brought us um, NASA folks down to our shop in uh, Long Beach. We have 115,000 square feet uh, of integration and workspace there um, and kind of showed us our, showed them our plans and, and, and our vision for the future. So. so you're very much a future vision company and you've got a roadmap laid out for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that roadmap of what Vast is looking to, look, to do? Yeah, so we, we talked a lot about Haven One talked um, a little bit about our future space station, uh, but also on that roadmap is there's another incremental step. As we're a young company, we want to practice in space first. So we have a demonstration mission planned uh, with a small spacecraft, uncrewed, unpressurized, um, we call Haven Demo. They will test a lot of the um, uh, early, you know, initial avionics that we have, kind of the, the, the backbone of our space station, um, some of the uh, low heritage systems, um, get those, you know, space heritage up to tier L9 um, and ready to be incorporated into a crewed spacecraft. Um, and then, uh, you know, incorporating, uh, like I said, the small um, artificial gravity test on a small scale and an uncrewed, uh, shorter duration, and then eventually incorporating that into uh, a large space station full time. What a very exciting time for you. You touched on in-space manufacturing. Is there anything else you're really pushing for and looking forward to in the, in the future of the aerospace industry as it's starting to really take off right now? So we're kind of looking, you know, as NASA and, and all of the CLD providers is looking for that killer app. Um, what makes sense um, on the manufacturing side to do in microgravity or, or other, you know, partial gravities as, as we've talked about. And we, we're really challenging the industries, you know, but leading candidates would be pharmaceutical, um, semiconductors, um, but really broaden the area outside of the space industry and how can Earth use microgravity and potentially artificial gravity to do things um, in space and bring them back down to Earth um, to have you know, a multiplicative effect um, that you can't do in 1G. Um, so we're excited for that. I think you know, with the, um, we're, we're now looking towards the end of the International Space Station. It's been an incredible opportunity as a laboratory that's um, been you know, highly subsidized by international space agencies. Um, but now we're looking, we're challenging the industry to really formulate that business plan. Um, what, what makes sense? Um, how could you get to, uh, to a good bottom line of, of profitability to do something in space? Um, and, and with us, it's finally the first commercial opportunity to really do that. So we're excited for, for that, that first um, uh, kind of spark uh, that would start the uh, commercial Leo economy. We see, you know, definitely there's, there's promise here and there. And, and, and folks kind of just, uh, you know, getting to a point where um, it's, it's making sense for them. Um, and we just want to buy that platform for, uh, to, to make that opportunity a reality. So we've focused on the low Earth orbit market so far, but what about beyond that? And yes, there is a beyond that. And that would be what's called cislunar. And it's a term that refers to the area between the Earth and our nearest natural satellite, the Moon. This 240,000-mile distance is a fascinating new market for commercial space companies, but not without its own challenges, of course. So, what's the potential for commercial markets in cislunar space? To learn more, 
I spoke to Ron Burke from the Aerospace Corporation about this emerging market. Hi, my name is Ron Burke. I serve as the principal director for the Space Enterprise Evolution Directorate at the Aerospace Corporation. Um, overall, my responsibilities uh, are focused on the future of space, the areas where the space enterprise uh, looks very different into the future. Um, as I like to say, I uh, focus on areas that look uh, very different through the windshield and through the rearview mirror. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you. There are a lot of topic areas I, I know I could ask you about. I'm going to do my best to just focus on one of them today. Uh, and that one is cislunar. It's been in the news a lot. Uh, it's been in uh, even like the mainstream news. I was reading some stories in the New York Times recently about the grand plans for cislunar. And before we get to any of the, you know, the ideals of what one day uh, like a lunar economy might look like, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to happen to develop what cislunar is going to look like. And I know this is something that you're deeply involved in. Can you give me sort of like the pitch for um, where we need to be going to before we get to the the end goal, so to speak? You know, recognizing that uh, cislunar is a green field in space, um, largely undeveloped. One of the things that we recognize is that to achieve the sustainable cislunar ecosystem that's called out in our national cislunar strategy, we're going to need a number of foundational layers of infrastructure to be put in place. And we've been um, looking at that and, and coordinating across the community, and we've identified 12 foundational layers of infrastructure that are going to need to be put into place. And we've also identified over 80 companies that are planning to build and deploy, operate uh, over 100 systems aligned with those 12 layers of infrastructure uh, in the coming years. The focus here is on U.S. or is this more global? So the focus is on U.S. and allies. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Um, so I, when I think about Lunar, I, I just kind of have a hard time imagining how we get there from here, where we're at right now. It does seem very uh, aspirational and it's wonderful. I just, I'm kind of like, well, how, how, how do we get started on this? What's the next step? You know, it's only 240, you know, thousand miles. So it's <laughs> not that far. No. Um, so, so the way that we get started is we, we recognize that there are plans to put up, um, Four layers of infrastructure, starting with communications um, and navigation, uh, and that launching the systems that are that that have the uh, engineering capacity to be able to deliver that functionality has been demonstrated. The challenges are predominantly um, in verifying that those capabilities will not only deliver the functionality that they're that they're intended to deliver, but that they'll work in the cislunar domain, which has some very different attributes. Um, the environment has very different attributes than even the low Earth orbit environment has, right? There are differences in radiation exposure, lighting is different, et cetera. And so there has to be a proving out of the capabilities to operate in that domain. And there also has to be the establishment of interoperability between the capabilities that 
these individual companies and government agencies are planning to deploy and other elements of the ecosystem, other systems that represent other infrastructure layers. So the comm systems need to be able to um, work with the power systems, need to be able to work with the in-situ resource utilization uh, systems, et cetera. So that's that's the, one of the more near-term challenges is um, beyond the development of the technology to achieve the functions of these infrastructure layers, we need to work out their interoperability um, and and um, ability to be able to work in the environment, the di- very different um, environment of the cislunar domain. Yeah, I as as you mentioned that I um I recall a a, a comic by XKCD about the establishing standards, and then someone goes, I want to establish a new standard, and you, now you have an extra standard. I, I'm badly quoting the comic, but it's a big challenge here on Earth for interoperability to be achieved. Uh, and I'm imagining, you know, in, an, in a situation where you know, we can't go visit it in person ourselves, most of us, so that is going to be an interesting challenge. And it feels almost overwhelming to think about a task this big. So where, where are we right now? Like, where, who's working on this problem right now? Wonderful question. The AIAA, um, last year established the Cislunar Ecosystem Task Force as a platform for companies and government agencies uh, to come together and share information uh, that's necessary for coordinating at an engineering level the interoperability of their systems. So that has um, made significant progress over the course of the last year. There are 15 working groups within this structure of the AIAA, Cislunar Ecosystem Task Force. Many of those working groups um, have been stood up with co-chairs and members and are underway uh, with their uh, coordination uh, processes and practices. There's two other groups that are underway with coordination. Uh, One is the CONFERS Consortium, uh, which is a trade association that is focused on compiling best practices and lessons learned um, associated with what will be uh, needed as standards. Uh, So CONFERS members come together, compile best practices and lessons learned, and then uh, those compiled recommendations are submitted to a standard development organization. Um, And there are several standards development organizations that CONFERS works with including the International Standards Organization, the ISO, as well as AIAA. Uh, So they also are working in uh, this space, um, having recently extended their domain from a focus on LEO for many years. Their focus is now extended to Cislunar and beyond. And then the third uh, group for reference is the SPACE ISAC, the Information uh, Sharing Analysis Center, uh, which has a focus on bringing together companies and and approaches for uh, sharing information. Um, and one aspect of this is lunar domain. Uh, people have noted that data is actually going to be the coin of the realm in Cisluna. So having the ability to share data um, across the community efficiently is very important. And a space ISAC community is working on that over. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I can absolutely imagine that being the case, and uh, especially keeping that data uh, secure as well, I imagine would be a, a huge priority as well. Absolutely. 
This is sort of a soft question, but I, I am curious. Like, how are you feeling about the prospects of how this is going? I mean, it is. I'm not trying to downplay. It is a. It is a very exciting challenge, but I imagine it's it's a daunting one too. So, how, how are you feeling about it? Feeling really, really good. I mean, it is a daunting challenge um, at at several levels. You know, one is that it does take a critical mass of capability. Uh, to be able to get to a, a sort of a minimum threshold of an operational ecosystem, which implies, which indicates that several different companies and government organizations are going to need to be able to successfully deploy their comm systems, their nav systems, their sensing systems, uh, all in a similar time frame, so that we get to what we refer to as a go green status, right? That there is an initial operating state of multiple individual functional capabilities that can all support the other, right? So that's both feeling very good that there's as many people and players as there are in the space um, and also recognizing the challenges of actually enabling all of those players to come forward. A, a relative area of trepidation um, is that um, as for the space enterprise rightfully looks for TRL level nine capabilities, systems that have actually flown in space uh, to be deployed uh, in space uh, for operational purposes, there's a fairly significant amount of capability that has not had that opportunity to, to be flown in space. So an, an enabling area for the space enterprise is test beds and proving grounds that will allow uh, systems and capabilities to be demonstrated and for trust and confidence to be built up in those um, on their path to being deployed for an operational utility in an ecosystem environment. Thank you to our guests, Steve Wolf, David Caponio, and Ron Burke for sharing their insights with us today. And if you're interested in hearing more about the space industry, join me every day for T-Minus Space Daily. It's available on all major podcast platforms. You can find out more at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can email us at space at n2k.com. And your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our Veep is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>